Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but this podcast is so delightful. And if you got no place to go, listen to Judo Chop Suey Show. Yuletide greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. Coming back at you with a holiday Yuletide edition of the Judo Chop Suey Podcast. I'm very happy about that. On this episode, I'm going to bring back Kiyoshi for part two of my interview. That's that's Kiyoshi of JudoFan.com. For those that you may not have heard the first episode, which I highly recommend that you do because we break down the Abe versus Maruyama match. And in this episode, we're going to get a little bit into... You know, some of the myths uh, regarding training in Japan, some of the the Japanese culture uh, within sports and specifically within judo, it's really interesting stuff, some eye-opening stuff, things that that I've heard of, but I just really wasn't aware to the extent of some of the experiences that young judoka have uh, training in some of the schools in Japan. I'm also going to talk a little bit about some good news pertaining the IJF and uh, and Israel. And, you know, for Os Nation out there, I want to get into a video series, uh, at least part of a video series that I have watched called Feet to Floor. I want to do a little bit of a review. I'm not going to go in depth, but it's really interesting to me to see maybe the direction that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu may be going over the next five years in terms of how they teach their curriculum. So I think I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, after the interview with Kiyoshi. But first, I want to talk a little bit about COVID again. I think in the last episode or the episode prior, I might have talked about making a decision to go back to the club and, and go practicing again. Well, I've I've all but scrapped that Um when I had made that decision to maybe start going back on a regular basis, at least with a few people in judo, I really thought the local numbers in terms of COVID were going down. Actually, they were going down. There's no question about it. But right now, man, things are just spiking back up. And I, I just, I'm not worried about it personally. I was exposed about two and a half weeks ago. Somebody within our circle was exposed to somebody that was uh, tested for for COVID, tested positive, that is. So as soon as we heard that, we decided to get another COVID test. So I think this is probably about the third one that I've had and, well, third or fourth, something like that. If you want to count the testing for COVID antibodies, that would probably be about the fourth test. So I grabbed it. I got a test. Uh, probably about a week ago, I got the results uh, a few days ago, and I was negative. So I was I did not catch COVID, you know. And for me, you know, I'm not worried about catching it personally. I'm not really worried about that. But it's not just about me. I have to think about my family. So I just don't know. It's trending in a direction that doesn't make me feel uh, good about training. So I'm going to have to put that on pause again and then just maybe just have people come over my house, people that I know that to keep it safe. But you know what? I keep it safe. I stay safe. I do everything that the so-called experts are recommending. And guess what? I was still exposed to it anyway. 
so I don't know. I a, a big part of me thinks the reaction is overblown, especially in 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 some states like California and and certainly in New York and within inner New York City. I mean, people are really suffering. And look, I'm not going to get into the politics of it all, but I have to wonder in terms of comparison and stuff, what's the fundamental difference between having 30 people in a restaurant that's about 5,000 square feet versus 2,000 people in a Walmart that's about 100,000 square feet? I, I, I really don't know what the real difference is there. And I'm not convinced that you're any safer in one versus the other. You know, and this reminds me of a series of video posts that I have seen Posted by the head instructor of Staten Island Judo and Jiu-Jitsu. I think the fellow's name is Joseph Canizo. Hopefully I got that name right. You know, if you want to hear a very passionate plea on how COVID is affecting these business owners, go listen to that guy. Go to YouTube, find that guy. I'm sorry, not YouTube, Instagram. Go on Instagram and find that guy and listen to him. Because I'm telling you what, anybody out there that says that the right thing to do is to shut down restaurants and shut down small businesses, anybody that says that is not a business owner. Or if they are, they are in a business that is completely unaffected by COVID. You know, I've made the personal choice again to not go back to the clubs until I I see data Uh, And case numbers going the opposite direction that it is currently. But I will not begrudge anybody who wants to open up their club and run classes for anybody to go in there and train and make that decision for themselves. I, I don't I don't care. I still don't care. Yeah. And, you know, and by the way, I know now that I think about it, I I've donated to this person's uh, he had a GoFundMe page. And I did donate a little bit of money to him. And I'm not saying that just to pat myself on the back. But I want to say to any club owners out there, if you've got a GoFundMe or something like that, and you want exposure, if you want help from the judo community to help keep your business afloat, please shoot me an email at judochopsuishow at gmail.com. And I will, at the very least, get your information out there to as many people as possible, including on the podcast itself. I will donate to you uh, as as much as I can, and I will get the word out for you. I mean, any little bit can help, right? So I figure if I can use the uh, power of podcasting to get the word out, I'd, be, I'd love to do it for you. So just, just let me know. Reach out to me and let me know. Now, continuing on, on the International Judo Federation front, uh, there's a, a bit of news that came out a couple of days ago. The... Tel Aviv Grand Prix has now been updated to a Grand Slam. Now, I saw this bit of information on judoinside.com, and you know what? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you're not reading judoinside.com, what the hell's the matter with you? Well, now, what does surprise me a little bit is that this was not a press release by the International Judo Federation. I went on their website uh, to confirm the news that Hans reported on, and I didn't see it. I didn't see it on there. Um, and when I look at the judoinside.com article, they are referencing a Jerusalem Post article about this. And I have no reason to believe that the Jerusalem Post article is wrong. So I'm just a little surprised that that the IJF hasn't announced it officially. But be that as it may, 
I think this is fantastic for Israel, and I think it's well-deserved. If you take a look at the the two Grand Prix that they've had over the past two years, it's been a phenomenal event. Now, I can't speak to the 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 competition experience, you know, what the what the competitors experience is, is at this Grand Prix over the past couple of years. But as far as a viewing event, Tel Aviv knows judo. Israel knows judo. And those people are very passionate about judo. And it was evident when just hearing the crowd. And plus, not only that, I, I think this is a good decision to make because, well, Tel Aviv uh, earned it and deserves it. But secondly, the um, the points received from this tournament now are, are higher, which which if there is going to be a 2021 Olympics, which I still don't think there will be. But if there is one, athletes have another opportunity to gain more points toward their Olympic qualification. Now, with regards to Olympic qualification, for those of you who will be listening to this podcast prior to December 13th, I want to remind you all that the Hifumi Abe uh, Yoshiro uh, Maruyama match is happening this Sunday at 1 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. However, wherever you live, you may want to figure that out. And if you're interested in a very good breakdown of of that match, uh, please listen to the first uh, or my previous episode with Kiyoshi of JudoFan.com. He breaks down this match really well, and we really get into that discussion. But I'm going to bring on Kiyoshi again right now, and we're just going to talk about other things related to judo in Japan. So with that, here is Kiyoshi. Do you write your blog in Japanese as well as English? Like, who is your intended audience for your blog? Because every time I type judofan.com, obviously it's in English. I don't know if you also serve a, a, a page in Japanese. Do you do, you do that? Yeah, no, you know, in Japanese, they've got this uh, subscription-based uh, website called eJudo, and it's just so good. Um, and there's, there, you know, it's a business for them. They're, they're really professional about it. I just don't think that there would be um, much of an audience. And as well, um, a lot of the stuff that I explain in the blog is uh, for somebody who follows judo in Japan, it would just be, you know, really basic information you know explaining what the super bowl is type of thing you know okay. if, if i was writing a football blog in in the u.s and i was spending a lot of time explaining what the super bowl is or something um you know i might not have many uh readers but you know if i was explaining the nfl in japan then i might have uh you know somewhat of a following so I, yeah i focus 100 percent on the uh english speaking um english speaking uh, group of well, you know, English-speaking part of the world. Of course, of course, and and like I said, your 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 blog and your posts they they've helped me a lot over the years understand some things. But since I have you here, there yeah. are things that I don't know about judo in Japan. Like okay. I hear a lot of things, I, I, and we've talked about this off air, and and I'm going to bring it up now. Over the 14 years that I've been involved with judo. I hear a lot about judo in Japan and and training methods and things that happen and, you know, how popular judo is over there. I've heard people say so many times that judo is the second most popular sport in the world. 
I don't think that's true. I'm not yeah. even sure if judo is the most popular sport in Japan. I, I would venture to guess that it's baseball. So I hear these things. I think yeah. there's a lot of, of uh, misconceptions and myths out, myths out there, and I'm hoping that maybe you can clarify some of this stuff, starting with is judo the most popular sport in Japan? Yeah, that's a great question. Not even close. Not um, even close. Not even close. I'm going to, I just read um, a statistic. Um, in 2008, there were 193,328 uh, judoka registered with the All Japan Judo Federation. And in 2018, 10 years later, it's 149,301. So it's basically a uh, 50,000 member drop in 10 years. Um, and it's really worrying to me is that outside of a few really top level, um, you know, high schools and universities, um, the judo population is, is really quite small. It's very hard to field full teams for these, a lot of high schools around Japan. And uh, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I have a lot of theories, but uh, one of the, the concrete um, uh, undeniable facts is that J Japan compared to 40, 50 years ago, they've got so many sports that uh, students can choose from. You can play American football in Japan. You can play rugby. Uh, you can do rhythmic gymnastics. I mean, there's pretty much the sky's the limit. And so, uh, yeah, Japan is definitely not uh, the most popular sport in Japan right now. That's really fascinating. That, that number shocks me. I would have guessed maybe half a million active judoka in Japan. That would have been my guess. I, I've heard, I heard numbers that, you know, 60 years ago, it was, it was millions. But, but that yeah. surprises me because I know that there are countries, other countries uh, that have higher numbers. I, I think Brazil, I, I once heard Brazil a couple of years ago, a number of practicing judoka uh, is close to 2 million. And I've heard in France, you got about 250,000, 250,000 registered judoka. So to hear, right. uh, to hear a number like yeah. that is, is shocking to me. I, I, I would have never guessed. I, if it was the United States, that number would just be fantastic. But even you know, 60 years ago, in the, 50, 60 years ago in the United States, we, we probably had about 250,000 uh, registered judoka, you know, and I'm talking about in the you know 60s and 70s, but right, right, right. But I just would have never thought Japan had that kind of a, a drop off. Um, but but there is opportunities that you may not see in other in other countries. So, for example, you you've mentioned that you've been an assistant coach, and that's right. a paid position, correct? It's um, so the way it generally works in Japan is um, from junior high school up to the, the corporate level teams. Um, well, the corporate corporations are a bit different, but at the school level, um, most of the university head coaches are um, professors or employed by the university. Um, and then part of their job is to coach the judo team. So it's not. Uh, it's, I couldn't say that they're employed 100% for judo. And, and as well, a lot of the national team coaches, they have their own jobs at their own universities. And um, 
you know, are probably paid on top of that by the judo federation, but their main kind of source of income is, is for the most part, not judo. I mean, of course, you know, Kosei Noe are the, the top, the top ones right now. They're, they're 100%, you know, um, getting paid for coaching, but a lot of these, uh, coaches are, are professors as well. Of course. Okay. That, that makes, uh, that's interesting. Cause I, so I, cause I remember, you know, when I was in college, my, my calculus teacher was also the, the, the head coach for the baseball team. So it's, it's right. some, it can be at a smaller school, but, but it is similar in, in, in that way, but at least it is a, it is a paid position and there are opportunities uh, for people to teach judo and still, you know, make a living, even though they're, they're doing it as an educator. Yeah, right. And, you know, especially I would say in the junior high schools and high schools, um, you know, their bonuses are tied to their results. And basically, they're full time judo teachers. I mean, you know, they, they morning practice, afternoon practice after school, they practice on Saturday and Sundays, you know, they've got tournaments. And so it's, it's, <laughs> it's like a super full on uh, commitment um, in, in Japan. Now, how um how early do do kids start getting into judo in Japan? Is it is it around six years old? Do they do they wait later? Um, and and is there a rank structure for children or, or, or at these schools as well, or or is it just more of a um? How would I? liken it to if you're if you're aware of of pe class in the united states is right. judo along the lines of pe or is it something a little bit more formal where that is the that is the class that you're doing you're doing a judo class and it's beyond just regular physical education class okay yes yeah, so the um in school you um and this is kind of recent i would say maybe it took, came into effect about 10 years ago but um, high school students have to study either kendo or judo as a requirement. Um, and so a lot of um, Japanese, almost all Japanese um, people are, have been exposed to judo at some point uh, during their high um, schooling years. Um, but as far as uh, elite athletes and the, you know, the top athletes, they would normally start judo at a local dojo at around, you know, probably six, um, you know, Krista Deguchi, I think she said she started at three. Um, and the, my local dojo, they've, they start accepting students at three years old. Um, and basically there's two really kind of two types of clubs. There's the recreational type and then there's the, you know, type that are, um, you know, really aiming to produce top level uh, judo players. And uh, then once you hit uh, junior high school, depending on your area, if you're out in the countryside or you, your parents don't want to send you off to, you know, a bigger school, you might still com um, continue practicing at your local club uh, along with practice at your junior high school. But a lot of the top athletes here who are training, you know, for the national team and stuff, they'll leave home uh, in the, after graduating from elementary school, and then they'll go to a sports-specific junior high school and high school uh, to train. So how, um, 
how do you see a lot of these younger kids coming up through you, whether at junior high and such? Do, do many of them have aspirations to be on the national team or, or so is, and I'm wondering if there's a lot of, of uh, a lot of competition going up through the junior ranks and moving on up to be a part of the, the, the Japanese national team, or is it, or is it really just a select few people and, and, but most kids really do it for recreation? Um, yeah, I, I would, I think that there are lots of, um, young athletes who would like to be on the national team or to, to train at a very high level. But if you really look at um, the national team members now, um, you know, the vast majority were winning championships in elementary school and they just never stopped winning. And so, you know, it really comes down to select few. Um, I, I have heard of one um, national champion who started in high school and she, of course, she was an exception. And also, she, her career kind of took off when Japanese females were really just starting to um, compete in judo to really with a higher population and a, a kind of at a higher level. Sure. Um, and so I think it's, it's quite rare for people to start at, a, at an older age and really hit the you know national level i will say sorry and this is kind of um going a bit long-winded but Don't the japanese you know all japan junior high championships and the all japan high school championships i think are a really big deal where it might not be as big of a deal overseas to win like an all japan junior high school championship um and so i think a lot of um a lot of students are aware that they're not going to be national champions, but to represent your prefecture. So basically aside from Tokyo and I think maybe Osaka, one athlete per weight class per prefecture, there's 51 prefectures in Japan, um, get the um, qualify for the all Japan championships. And so, you know, if you're representing your prefecture, I think that's a really huge deal. And so I think a lot of students, you know, they're quite happy to let that be kind of their end goal. Okay. And that, that makes sense. That's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. I, I can completely yeah. understand that. So what about, um, it, it, we, I had talked to you about this, this before, what are some of the myths and misconceptions that maybe people from the outside have in mind about, um, judo in japan and training in japan and such because i i gotta tell you i sometimes i hear things from from other coaches and, and sometimes you know a lot of the old school coaches in in the united states have these really odd ideas at least odd to me um yeah on training in japan and and how they do things over there and yeah. You know, a lot of people have these, this idea, you, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, it's, it's your, your technique is king and that right. you don't need as much strength or, or I hear a lot of strange things. And so right. I was wondering, you, I know you have an opinion on some of these other things that you've heard as well, things you've read online. I've read a lot of the similar things. What is your take on some of the myths? What are some okay. of the common myths that you've heard? And, and what, yeah. And yeah. just take, well, tear it down. 
Okay, first first myth is that I said there was 51 prefectures, and that's a complete myth because there's actually 47. So let me just uh, correct okay. myself on what no, I just said. No problem um, there. But um, yeah, so w- one thing that you said is technique is king, and I do think technique is king um, in judo, but um, I think it really um, marginalizes the diversity um, that exists in judo in Japan. One of the Olympic alternates um, <clears throat> on the, tw- well, the tw- I guess now it'll be the 2021 team. Um, his high school coach once told me that uh, he said, you know, I've only got my students for two and a half years because in Japan, um, high school is three years and the All Japan Championships happen in August, which is about six months before they graduate. And so, you know, after the All Japan Championships, they've got really no big competitions left. And he said, I've got my kids for two and a half years and I got to squeeze every ounce of potential out of them in two and a half years. And because they're coming from all over Japan, they've got all different, you know, styles and coaches. I don't try to correct their technique. At this point, my job is to get them incredibly physically fit and uh this the the high school uh they've never won a national championship but they've come in second and they're regularly on the podium um and there's several members on the national team right now so i think you know the and and of course there are there there's the other spectrum uh where they do really emphasize technique and uh but i think that it's quite a diverse um it's a diverse situation, just like it would be, um, you know, in the United States in regards to other sports, you know, you have different philosophies, um, different goals um, that, you know, different teams are trying to achieve. And I think, yeah, sometimes, you know, I'll read these uh, posts on, on, uh, on some judo forums and it's almost like people have a kind of a religious uh, belief about judo that I don't think, really exists in japan as much fascinating that that's a really great way to put it because i've seen that as well so go go ahead please continue yeah you know um not washing your belt or um you know making sure that the belt doesn't touch the ground i've heard those (laughs) things before (laughs) you know um if you told a japanese person that you didn't wash your belt uh, they might be kind of uh you know put off by that i think um and uh you know, um, um, well, we're probably going to get into this with the blue and white judogi at the Kodokan, and I think that is a big deal. Um, but I, I think this idea that Japan doesn't like the blue judogi and, you know, they're traditional and they're fighting all the, you know, uh, foreign powers that are trying to, you know, take over their sport, I think that's a bit... Um, I think that's a bit unfair. Um, there are lots of young, you know, athletes here who, who are very important to, you know, the whole culture that makes up judo in Japan who are, you know, would really enjoy wearing a, you know, colored judogi or, you know, having their club wear, you know, different styles of judogi, I think. And, um, yeah, of course there are, um, officials here who are very against, uh, you know, wearing the blue judogi and in my club in fact we we're, we don't wear an undershirt a rash guard but i think that's a 
pretty rare situation. You you go to most clubs and they've got rash guards on and it's, it's no problem. See, that's really interesting to me because I, I, I mean, I, I've been to clubs here in the United States where they, they really strongly discourage wearing, you know, anything under the judogi uh, because, right. because it's not, it's not traditional. And that leads me to another question. How, I don't. I think that there are a lot of clubs in the United States and probably all over the world that it's almost ran as a caricature of Japanese culture. Yeah, and and I'm wondering, in Japan, is is judo viewed more as a sport, or is yeah. it viewed more as a as a way of life, a a, a budo, if you will? It, yeah. How is it viewed by the general public? Okay, so I think, you know, one of the things that I really didn't like was that when the, the leg grabs were banned, I think that was back in maybe 2008 after the um, Beijing Olympics, all the media coverage was, this is judo versus J-U-D-O, and they would write judo in the Japanese, uh, you know, in the Chinese characters, and then j-u-d-o in you know romanized characters and i always thought that was not really fair and not really um very good because i've met you know a, a particularly um sensei from europe and stuff who are extremely extremely knowledgeable and have great technique um so i think there is this kind of people who are living in Japan, but not really connected with judo have this idea that um, judo is a very traditional and, you know, beautiful sport where, um, or not a sport maybe, um, but, you know, kind of uh, Japanese, part of Japanese culture, but then, and this could be part of uh, where I live perhaps um, and what I've been exposed to um, but then you have the other side where, you know, a lot of these young parents, they want their, uh, you know, sons and daughters to be tough kids and to be able to beat someone up. And, you know, they come in and it's, you know, lights, all the lights on in the dojo and they've got sunglasses on and, you know, looking intimidating and stuff. And right. uh, so, you know, and, and so they, there's that. And, um, and then of course you've got, uh, you know, even within the, all Japan Judo Federation, I think there's really a lot of different kind of cliques and kind of groups who are kind of really wondering where judo is supposed to go from here because it's really become, you know, an Olympic sport. And um, a lot of, I think, things that um, maybe certain uh, people in the judo community value have been kind of lost i mean case in point is that the kodokan cup is called the kodokan cup but the um the people who host it or the group that hosts it is the all japan judo federation and so and and the same thing with the all japan open weight championships that used to be you know uh run by the kodokan and now it's run by the uh federation and so you know the kodokan really has uh distanced itself from the kind of sporting aspect, I think. So it, the, the Kodokan, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, please. These yeah. days it more operates as a private dojo. Would that, would that be correct? Or, or am I wrong about that? Uh, oh, it's, it's really hard. Um, they, they, um, 
they deal a lot with um, rankings. And so in order to get promoted, um, you know, you've got to get promotion through the Kodokan. Um, and so it's kind of this very interesting setup. And um, I don't even know how to, I, I, I may say you might, you might want to cut this out because I don't really know how the All Japan Judo Federation and the Kodokan work exactly. Um, but, you know, the Kodokan is, is big. They've got a library. Um, they deal with a lot of kind of the historical preservation of judo. Um, so I would say it's more than a club, but I would say in terms of the sporting aspect, they've, um, you know, kind of uh, taken a backseat to the All Japan Judo Federation. That That's interesting. So that leads me to a question. When it comes to, let's say you got a high schooler. Um, actually, maybe you can answer this. At what age do, do kids, a kid starts at six years old. By what age, how long does it take for, for a, a kid that starts or maybe somebody in junior high school to earn a shodan? And, and what do you think that rank signifies in Japan compared to other places around the world? Yeah, so one of the, I think one of the common routes, the most common routes is that when a student, before a student goes to high school, they get the shodan from their junior high school club. I think that's probably the most common uh, pattern. And then, um, you know, they, a lot of times you want to try to get the second degree, the Nidan, uh, before going to university. Right. Um, And then, you know, especially if you're trying to become a, uh, you know, a coach or, you know, a teacher, a judo teacher, um, it helps to put the, you know, Sandan on your resume. So, a lot of times before the, um, you know, somebody graduates from university, they'll probably have a sandan. In very rare cases, they might have a, a you know, fourth degree um, by the time they graduate from university, but that's a little bit more uh, unusual, I think. Um, but as far as the, the belt ranking system, you know, I've, at my friend's dojo, in elementary school, they give out colored belts. And I think primarily to keep this kids interested but then when they get up to junior high school, uh, they'll trade in the brown belt or whatever color belt they have, and they'll just wear the white belt because that's what everybody else competes in. Sure. It's either a white belt or a black belt in the junior high school um, competitions. And so, um, but I, I don't know, you know, I've seen dojos in Japan where they just do white belt the whole way up and uh, they don't even hand out the colored belt. So I think that kind of depends um, but yeah, sh- Shodan is, is not a, I think, you know, it doesn't equal master for sure. It's sure. kind of, you know, high and school how student. Old, how old, um, when, when a, in Japan, when, a, when a, uh, a student graduates middle school to go into high school, what, what age is that typically? Uh, about 15 or 16. Um, so they go through, it's, it's like a K through 12. You can just think of it in the United States, sixth grade, they graduate elementary school. And then instead of having two years in a junior high school, which I think is common in the United States, they get three years in junior high school and then three years in high school. Okay. Okay. So, so maybe a 14 or 15 year old, um, that's how old they are going into high school. Yeah, maybe closer to 15 or 16. 15 to 16. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Now, when, 
when a student is promoted to Shodan, and, and this right. goes back to what you were discussing with the Kodokan and the right. AJJF, is right. that a, is, does everybody that earns a Shodan, is that a Kodokan rank or does the a, uh, you know, All Japan Judo Federation, are they the ones that, that, that promote you? How, how does that happen for, or is it a club promotion where it's just within the club and it's recognized throughout you know, the country, whatever? The, how, how is that done? Yeah, so I think the way it happens is that um, the sensei, whoever your teacher is, if it's a junior high school teacher, he, he will, you, you have to get points through, a tur- through tournaments, you have to demonstrate a kata, and then um, they, and you also have to get a letter of recommendation, which is usually your sensei, and then they will apply to the Kodokan to get your uh, ranking. The Kodokan will send you a certificate um, you know, saying that you passed all these requirements um, and take quite a bit of money as well. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, yeah, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. And then, um, and then when you register for the AJJF, your Kodokan rank is uh, is synonymous with the AJJF. And so, okay. um, so then the ceremonies and stuff would be held inside of your dojo or sometimes maybe the city might have a special ceremony or something like that. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. But, but so it is still the Kodokan that primarily yeah. deals with the ranking there. Okay. I, I think it's the Kodokan that only deals with the rank. I they, don't think that the AJJF officially uh, hands out ranks, although I'm sure they have lots of influence. Understood. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I was just curious if there was, if there was an organization where the ranks typically go through in the United States, there's, there's several organizations four off the top of my head that I know of. Um, they, they all do ranks differently, but, but it doesn't sound like in, in Japan that there's more than one organization that deals with judo rank. Yeah. Not, not that I'm aware of at least. So what about, some other you and you mentioned this you you just talked about you know the promotion process and and a letter of recommendation and things like that going back to the subject of myths uh, about going to japan or training in japan i've heard things in the past that you know for myself if i wanted to visit a club in japan yeah. Um, well, one, I've heard that it's very hard to do. And then two, I've also heard that it's recommended that you have a letter of recommendation to hand to a sensei. Is there any yeah. truth to any of that at all? Or is that just mi- uh, more misunderstandings from, from you know? Yeah, you know, there, there's hundreds of dojos in Japan. And so I can't speak for them all. Sure. But um from what I've experienced, that's just a bunch of uh, hogwash. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I think most dojos in Japan would be more than happy um, to have uh, athletes or, or people or judoka from overseas. Um, and in fact, I think a lot of um, judo clubs would like to invite uh, overseas judoka, but they just don't know how. They have no channels to do so. Um and now, what, as why far is as, that? What, what, what is it about yeah. the, the, the interest of, of having, because uh, I would have thought the exact right. opposite, but that's a really interesting point you just made. Well, I, um, I'm speaking from my experience at a, at a school um, sure. and from an educational standpoint, but a lot of universities um, require 
um, you know, professors or, or uh, high school teachers to have some sort of um, international cooperation or international exchange uh, kind of um, uh, events or something, um, programs in order to, you know, get evaluated more highly. Um, and so there, there, that's one. Another thing is the Japanese government is just really pushing um, Japan to really try to uh, internationalize or to try to do exchanges. And so that's another. And then uh, probably the biggest one is Japan. You know, they have a um, uh, program called JICO. I think it's the Japanese International Cooperation Association or something like that. And there it's a, it's a government uh, organization. They, they are putting in lots of money to develop judo around the world because uh, part of, you know, um, Japan knows that this is the one sport that is in the Olympics and they want to keep it an Olympic sport. And they know to do that, they have to keep, you know, a large amount of interest worldwide to keep judo as an Olympic sport. And so um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of money that uh, goes into judo from Japan as well. That's really interesting. Now, how, how are clubs supported in Japan? Is there is, is does the government support uh, judo clubs through? So, for example, the judo clubs that are around different areas in Japan are are they more like recreational centers where the government funds those buildings, or are they individual businesses? I don't know if that's a if that's a yeah. model that even happens in Japan. What, what how? All our all of these clubs supported. Yeah. Okay. So the, probably at the local grassroots level, the majority of judo clubs in Japan are uh, run by basically volunteers at a community center or at a sports center, where they will, um, you know, rent out the dojo for a minimal fee and have their dojo um, there. That's that's one route, and I'd say that's the most common route. The other, the other route is another route is um, a lot of dojos are connected um, to what is called the judo seifukushi, which is like a, um, they're kind of like physical therapists, um, but with a background in judo. And they have special um, kind of um, vocational schools to get a, a license to be kind of what is very similar to a physical therapist. And then um, a lot of judo teachers will run their physical therapy clinic uh, with a dojo attached to it. And so they're kind of, you know, using the judo as a way to, you know, boost their um, publicity. And also it's probably one of the only feasible ways to run a, a dojo um, in Japan. And then the third, which is um, very, um, a lot more rare are the dojos, which are, purely um, run like businesses and where they usually at those places, the aim is to produce Olympians and, and uh, they're very high level dojos. So, so, the, so a dojo like that, there would be an annual or, or maybe a monthly or an annual fee for the athletes and their families to be paying. Yes. At, at, yes. And so all of them would probably be fees, but you're talking about, um, you know, the community centers, they might charge 2000 uh, yen a month, which would be like $20 per month. Right. 
and and then the the same things with the clubs that are run out of the um the physical therapy clinics um those would be very cheap and then the professional ones where it's run just as purely as a dojo and as a business to be honest i don't know what they charge um i've never looked at the prices on one of those dojos so what about um so we've we've covered those types of dojos i've often heard about the police academy dojos or police dojos can okay. you can you talk a little bit about the the partnership or i don't know if you want to call it a partnership but judo it, with the police is a very common thing there what can you talk a little bit about uh, police clubs and and how it is it is it's judo is part of their regular training for law enforcement is that correct yes okay so um first of all every police uh prefectural police um uh, department or um, headquarters in every prefecture will probably have, I, I, I would venture to say every single one has a local judo club as well. And as, as well as the prefectural prison systems, they will have an attached club for local kids to um, do judo at. Um, on top of that, um, the prefectural police departments all have their own judo teams, which are primarily um, uh, staffed by um, elite judo uh, players um, who have graduated from university, um, you know, national championship caliber, and uh, they will have a police team and they will practice um, several hours per day um, in judo as well as uh, teach um, part of their job is to teach other police officers who are just part of the general police population in Japan. They'll teach them how to do judo and then they will compete as well. Um, But yeah, every um, uh, judo is a compulsory part of being a police officer in Japan. Fascinating. Yeah, I I've often heard about police clubs. Now, that's not something a foreigner uh, coming into the country would would look for. Correct. I mean, is that you know? I I think in 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 times gone by, um, I think the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department was probably the premier place to train for judoka sure. maybe thirty or forty years ago. Um, and so all the top um, Olympians and stuff, if they were coming through Japan, they would stop there. Um, and then, you know, even now some of these national teams, um, Holland, you know, they'll send their national team to train with some of the, uh, police departments. Um, but it, it, it is kind of different because they're doing it, um, as a profession and it's kind of part of their work. And so, you know, if you're, you just show up one day and you say, Hey, I want to train. It it might be kind of hard to do so also because it's a, um, there are police departments and, you know, privacy has to be respected, um, for the, for the athletes. Um, a lot of them don't have websites or any ways, easy ways to contact them about training. So I think a police department might be fairly difficult unless you're an elite level athlete overseas. And then I think it would be a lot easier. Now, 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 along those lines, if if somebody like myself, I wanted to go visit, 
visit Japan. I, I want to go to Tokyo, but I, I want to train somewhere else other than the Kodokan. Is it relatively yeah. easy to just, I don't know, look, search on a website to find these places or, or are judo clubs kind of hard to find and you need to know somebody to get in? Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on your, um, level of Japanese proficiency. And of course, if you have somebody who can help you kind of make these contacts, that would be a big part of it. But I think that at this point in time, if you are internet savvy, you can find a dojo that would be more than happy to, to help you. You just send an email. You don't need a you know, recommendation. For, to be totally honest, and this may sound rude, but probably majority of Japanese um, sensei here wouldn't know who your sensei is you know overseas anyways sure um, of course and so you know if it were me and uh you know knowing that i am i think you're a black belt and you've been doing it for 14 years i i would start by just searching online uh for a dojo um send them an email and see if you could go and i'm sure they'd be more than happy to Host you. One thing is that um, you've got to have a membership with your national federation um, for insurance purposes in Japan. So, um, you know, if they might ask, you know, if you can bring your uh, your you know your membership card or something like that, just so that they're not liable. Um, but yeah, as far as as far as training, I don't think it'd be a problem. I think. Um, you know, universities, they'd be more than happy to uh, have you train with them. And it's probably something that, you know, would be a good experience to do uh, maybe if just once. Um, but the, the other side of the coin to that is, do you really want to train at a top level university? And I, I think, you know, <laughs> I, I think. I know I would not. I would like to see it. I would like to yeah. see it practice, but actually train with them. I am not so sure. I could, I could keep up on at my age. No, I probably not. Yeah. And you know, there's plenty of good, uh, university dojos that are not aimed at building national champions, you know, that you could go to and have a good time with. Um, I think, you know, one of the common things that I hear is, you know, a young, you know, 25 year old, uh, wants to go to Japan to test his skills and he wants to go to the best place available. Um, and maybe a BJJ brown belt or something with two or three years of judo experience. And oh, that's, that's fine, but I, I think they might not have a realistic understanding of the skill that you need to have to, to train at that level. And then also you need to consider whether it'd be beneficial for the college students to spend their time training with you, you know, they might have a competition coming up the next week and they're totally focused on, uh, you know, winning that contest. So it's kind of, I don't know, I would try to think about it carefully before, you know, contacting the top Japanese university. Yeah. I, pr I probably would not go to Tokai personally <laughs> right. if I yeah, was over right. there. I, I yeah. that just, that just doesn't, that doesn't sound appealing to me. Um, right, right. I would love yeah. to, I would love to sit in on a practice, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and sitting in on a practice, I'm sure. And especially if you could get somebody to help you translate an email, I think it'd be no problem. Sure. Sure. Now, now, along the lines of myths, yeah. how 
how formal are Japanese dojo in general? Because there's, I mean, I don't know if everybody always bows on the mat and bows off of the mat. I don't know if you right. you bow to a picture of uh, of of Kano right uh, before practice. Does does that happen a lot over there, or is that just has that is from a bygone era? Yeah, excellent question, and that is really diverse. Um, uh, I have been into dojos where it is very traditional. I, w- I would say this first of all: everybody bows on and off the mat. That's a okay. that's a given. So that's one. But having a picture of Kano um, at the at the front of the dojo, um, yeah, that that depends on the place. Um, and I've been to a a, a prison you know, where they're basically professional judo athletes. I've been to a prison practice where um, they just all show up at different times. They uh, stretch out by themselves and then they just do dandori for as long as they can. In, in and then prison, they're done. They, they allow that? Yeah, uh, for the prison guards. The So all the prison oh, teams. Oh, for the prison um, guards. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I thought so, you meant the prisoners. Oh, yeah, no, no. We, I don't think <laughs> that, that would go down too well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they, um, that, that I would say is, is an extremely diverse thing. And I've seen, uh, dojos with very few, uh, you know, requirements. And then ones I, uh, my friends, one of my best friends is dojo. They're not allowed to sit down, uh, during Nandori, um, when they, when they don't have a partner and Nandori is going on because it's, you know, dangerous and that type of stuff. So and I think it's the same as the at, at the Kodokan. I don't think you're allowed to sit down during practice. Um, so yeah, I guess it just depends on where you go. Now, talking about other myths, this is one that I've I've heard over the years, and I don't know how true it is, or or how false, or if it's blown out of proportion. And it this is going to be a, a more of a negative subject. I have heard over the years different judo clubs where kids have died doing judo where kids have been abused during judo and i don't know if if those are are just unusual stories or if there's a, if if this is a relatively common thing and and if if deaths happen quite regularly in judo can you talk about maybe the if that is true it, it, right talk about that culture and, and what what it is like if the, if it's a myth or if it's true what what are your thoughts on that kiyoshi yeah that's a hard one um i would say this it is not unusual um not unusual it's a, no it's a i think it's a huge problem in japan uh, sexual harassment and i think one of the biggest ones is the is the bullying um between older students and younger students um I will say that I think it's improved a lot, um, you know, in, in the last uh, 10 or so years. I think the um, 2012 Olympics with the women's judo team and all the abuse that, you know, made national headlines, I think that was a big step towards trying to fix some of these problems. But, I, you know, I, I think that uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of theories on why the judo population is decreasing in japan and my my personal theory is it's just too abusive for most average students to endure these days and that's my personal opinion but uh yeah i i've i was um 
interesting story. Um, I was at a big competition, uh, uh, one of the most prestigious competitions in Japan for high schools. And um, one of the clubs uh, or one of the high school teams uh, within their team, a student punched another student right in the nose and blood was just like literally gushing out of his nose. And there were, you know, parents and people in the, in the, in the stands sitting just a few feet away and not a single parent or not a single person went to help that kid or to say anything. Um, and so I went to the, um, I went to the, I tried to go to the head of the tournament. Um, he, he was not available for whatever reason. So I went to the head ref. I told the head referee, I said, you know, this, this team, the kids got a bloody nose. You got punched in the face. Um, you know, you ought to do something. And uh, he looked at me, he said, is it your team? I said, no. He said, then don't worry about it. And that was that. And the team went on to win the, uh, win the tournament and they've got several kids on the national team right now. And, uh, you know, I think there's such a culture of fear to stand up to stuff like that. You, you're, you know, if you're a parent and your son's on the team, you know, that might mean that the, the coach, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't give you your son that extra attention or for whatever reasons, uh, you know, they, they just, nobody said a thing. And I, man, to this day, that, that situation really disturbed me. Why, why do you think that is? Because, you know, I, as uh, as an outsider looking into Japan and Japanese culture, it, there's a common thread and belief that yeah. the Japanese are the most polite people on earth. Um, yeah. And I've certainly seen many, many instances where that is true. Uh, right. for, for example, I believe when uh, I think a, a tsunami hit Japan right. several years ago and such, Nobody was rioting. Nobody was pushing each other. Everybody was standing right. in line, waiting their turn and understanding right. the situation and, and just showing courtesy. I mean, that, that's, the pic, that's the imagery that I have of, of the Japanese people and that culture as, as, as a whole. And it's a very good one. So yeah. why is there such a big gap between the most polite people on earth versus... Yeah parents and officials not doing anything for a kid who got punched in the nose and is bleeding all yeah. over the place. Why, why is there such a gap like that? Yeah, that's a hard one to answer um, concisely, but I, I think one of them is uh, Japanese um, culture. Um, it's not very advantageous in society to really stand out. And so to, to stand up to that stuff um, would make you stick out. And I think that's kind of um, very difficult to do in, in Japanese society. I think another, another reason is that a lot of the um, people who are attracted to judo um, are, you know, as I said before, parents who want their kids to be, you know, tough, tough kids and to, you know, kick ass and, you know, in the uh, lunchroom cafeteria or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Um, but let me read you something. This is from uh, uh, Joshiro Maruyama's um, uh, Wikipedia page. This, so this is not, I'm, I'm not uh, making this up. This is straight from his page. Right. 
His father, of course, was a thoroughbred uh, athlete himself. His father medaled. Where did he medal? He medaled at one of the Olympics. His, his older brother was a junior world champion. When he was in junior high school, his uh, father basically said, you're way too soft. And he, his, uh, he has a three-character name, Joe Shido. So Joe is one character. She is another character. And Doe is another character. And the middle character is, um, it kind of means uh, ambitious or ambition or somebody with, you know, uh, uh, a determination for their future or something. It has that nuance. And the father just uh, decided since he lost and he doesn't have any ambition, he's going to just change that character uh, to, <laughs> he changed it to basically a character that just means man. Um, huh. And then in 2016, when he lost to Abe uh, in, I guess that would have been the finals in 2016 at the national championships, his dad cut him off for three and a half years and didn't speak to him once until just before the 2019 world championships. Um, Goodness gracious. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in, I think in the West um, that would be considered, um, you know, mental abuse. Um, and, uh, and even in Japan, I think nowadays that would be considered mental abuse, but you have to remember that, you know, that was just kind of the culture that I think his father was probably brought up in. And, and most of the, you know, Kosei Noe, if you watch some of the documentaries, his parents were really, really um, strict. I mean, and, and severe, you know, he, he, I think he said he won a tournament and he didn't, but he didn't win by Ipon. So he handed over his certificate that he just won and his mom just ripped it up and left the building or something like that. Um, Boy, that that's tough. You know, I sometimes because yeah. I I have two uh, two teenage sons. One of them's already an adult, and and yeah, uh, I look back at my life and think, gosh, you know, what mistakes did I make? I never did anything like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at least well, I feel okay, you know. Yeah, and and I guess this is the thing about the judo population, and you know, my my wife and I, um, we're around judo all the time. My friends do judo. Um, you know, the people who invite us over to their houses do judo. And I've got a two-year-old son. And when we consider putting our kids, uh, our son into a judo program, you know, my wife is always kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know about this, you know, and because getting hit and, you know, getting really severely scolded is, is really just par for the course if you want to be a, uh, you know, an elite level athlete. And so it's it's a hard one. Is is this a is this a specifically a judo issue, or is this an issue that permeates throughout all sports in Japan? And, or does it is it limited to sports? Does this happen in in Japanese corporate culture? Does this happen in? Yeah, it does. Oh yeah, Bull, bullying um, is a is a real serious one where the you know the older athletes will you know, uh, really be harsh with the younger athletes. Going back to Mariyama, I don't want to, he's one of my favorite judo players. I don't want to be too hard on him. But, you know, when he was a university student, him and Shohei Ono, uh, their whole team got suspended uh, for, what is it, nine months, it looks like? No, no, uh, several months um, for basically there was bullying within, the, uh, within their team. 
and they got suspended from competing, um, which prevented him from, you know, participating in some of the big tournaments. Uh, and, uh, you know, Shohei Ono was in the news at the time. And it's amazing how quickly the Japanese media and everybody just forgot about that whole situation. Um, and, and the same thing, um, I do want to talk about that. I might get in trouble for this, but, um, you know, Masato Uchishiba, he, um, he got convicted of rape. Um, we're talking about the 2008 uh, yeah, Beijing, gold, Beijing would, gold medalist. I remember reading that story. <clears throat> yeah. Where he was the coach of a, a women's team. That's right. Um, yes. He, he got her drunk until she passed out, carried her to his hotel room, raped her. And it was all caught on camera. Um, Sorry, if this, I hope young kids are not listening to no, this part. No, I don't think, yeah, that's, don't worry about it. Yeah, but, you know, <clears throat> there's a fine, at least for me, where I think protecting the victim and the teammates um, from further trauma, it might just be a good idea to stay out of the spotlight. But, you know, even while he was in prison, he was blogging and you know, writing about all kinds of stuff. And it seemed like when he got out of prison, um, the AJJF really distanced themselves, but a lot of other athletes and prominent judo figures, you know, really didn't uh, maintain any distance or, or condemn his actions. And, you know, I, I think, you know, he paid his price. He was convicted. He served his time. He deserves a second chance. But at the same time, I think there's a certain amount of respect that you, you might want to give to the victims and their teammates um, where, you know, you just wouldn't want to be out in the spotlight all the time, of um, you know, but, and, and so I think uh, a lot of things, um, you know, just kind of get swept under. I'll give you another example, very good high school, <clears throat> high school uh, coach, uh, national level coach, um, and one of the best coaches that I've ever uh, met, um, you know, in my career, he was fired for sexual harassment of one of his students. He's a high school, this is a high school level. Fired for sexual harassment, got, uh, he left the sport for about four to five years and he's back now at the same school. And I think the thought was that, well, once everybody else is, you know, all the people involved in that whole thing are gone we can bring him back. And I just don't think that that would happen in other countries. No, it definitely, certainly here. I mean, yeah. At least in the United States, if something like that happened, that, right. that person could, would not even be able to show his, his face in the County. Right. Uh, yeah. Or, they'd or probably or even be... the state you, you would have to move. You would have to right. move so far away. Uh, yeah. um, where that history doesn't follow you. I mean, that's right. and they, the only solution. And they probably wouldn't be allowed to be around minors. No, um, absolutely you not. Know. That would never happen. And uh, so it, it's just a very interesting culture. I, you know, I just kind of wonder sometimes, um, you know, what it's going to be like in the next, because I will say Japan is taking a lot of measures um, to kind of combat some of these things that, you know, are, are very prevalent. I just think they're, 
it's happening a bit slow, more slowly than other countries. But what, I mean, is, is there an underlying belief that this makes this kind of abuse makes you a better athlete? Is, 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 or is this just go be, is this just a matter of, I, I don't know, guy, I hate to say tradition or history yeah. or, or, or just, well, <laughs> just people saying, well, I went through it. So you're going to go yeah. through it. To, to be totally honest, I, I think that, that the, at least the mental abuse probably does make some of these athletes a, a better, um, <laughs> probably better athletes than they would be. Um, something like, yeah, I can see, I, I can honestly, see. I mean, something like Mariyama, he loses once. Um, his father basically disowns him until he gets onto a world championship team. You know, those kind of mental things, as as abusive and terrible as it might sound, uh, for somebody who, uh, you know, is in the middle of that, that might be the motivator that they need to, you know, succeed at all costs. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I wasn't raised that way. So I, I it's hard for me to be, be in that mentality. But, um, you know, you, you see it where the, sometimes these athletes are more scared to um, make their coach upset, you know, than to just train really hard and get thrown, you know, and injured. Right. Boy, that, that's, that's really something else. When, as a coach for your, yourself now and, and maybe other yeah. coaches that you've observed, right. do you have to keep in mind, is, is the thought of the mental health ever an issue um, or, or even a concern in, in Japanese culture. I, it may be a concern for yourself for being a, the mental health of your athletes. Right. Uh, but but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying from a professional point of view. I'm just curious. Right. Do, you look at, do you look at an athlete and wonder, is there abuse happening in this person's life? Is there anything you can do about that if you even see something like that? Yeah, I, I think, okay, so here's, here's one thing that I will say is that um, teachers in Japan in general have a lot more interaction with their students' uh, mental well-being and kind of mental health than I would say probably happens in the West, almost to a point where it's too much. Um, but because of the working culture in Japan, you know, a, a judo club, uh, you know, a judo team's coach kind of becomes a student surrogate parent sure. for three years. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of time that they're together practicing is, you know, 30 hours a week sometimes. And then on Saturday and Sunday, they're off at competitions, staying at hotels, um, you know, for joint practices with other clubs. And so I, I do think in that sense that, um, um, teachers in Japan are much more aware of what their athletes are going through than maybe in some other countries. Um, sure. <clears throat> um, but that said, you know, there's plenty of coaches that are doing, you know, that are damaging their, you know, their athletes mental health with the training regimen or, you know um, what, you know, the way that they talk to them and stuff. But yeah, it was something that I was always, I, I still am, uh, you know, always worried about, I mean, suicide is, is such a high rate in Japan that it's always something that's in the back of your mind, you know? Is it? 
Okay. For See, me, I didn't, for, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know that about the suicide rates in Japan. That's. I have heard that there is. Uh, of course, Japan's a large country, but I've heard that there is a forest somewhere in Japan there where yeah. it's kind of known for people to take their own life in this forest for whatever reason that may be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um. I I would say that probably. Every person, every adult in Japan knows somebody who's uh, taken their own life. Unfortunately, um, wow. You know, that's, that's I, you know, sad. yeah. It's it's re- that's one of the really unfortunate. And this goes to that code of silence where I think um, people don't have the uh, agency, maybe to to speak about what they're going through it's you know going back to the kid getting punched in the nose and nobody saying anything out of fear and so i think a lot of people deal with uh what they're going through uh kind of internally and i think that can be really difficult what is um in in your perception and observation what it, when it comes to japanese culture and the japanese people what do you think that their overall impressions are of Americans. <laughs> um, oh boy. Cause I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I I've yeah. heard what other people, you know, in other countries think about uh, Americans and it's usually not yeah. very flattering. Well, uh, but, but I don't know what, what the Japanese perspective of American life is. <clears throat> I, I will say this. I, I don't want to um, stereotype because I've heard lots of different opinions about the United States. Um, there, um, well, of course, the election was just, you know, the to- even over here in Japan, that's a huge topic. That was in a the topic, last couple huh? of weeks. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and granted, there are people who love Donald Trump and there are ones who think he was a, you know, complete narcissist and terrible person. Um, so I, I think that in, in Japan, just like in the United States, there's a diversity of thought i think the common things are that americans probably eat too much and <laughs> you know um and it's a very rich country and it you know they have big houses and stuff but uh, one thing to remember is japan is a very insular society um you know i think still only less than two percent of the population are um you know expats or you know people from foreign countries and so there's just not a lot of knowledge and education about what goes on, what really happens in, you know, other countries. And so, you know, people, oh, I mean, I've heard it all, you know, um, really from going from very racist uh, things to really un, almost like how in, um, um, in the United States, some people kind of romanticize and kind of um, uh, make judo a religious thing. Yes. You no, know, I think. Much, very true. And, and I think in Japan, you know, um, personal freedom or how wonderful and involved um, American fathers are compared to Japanese fathers where, you know, I know plenty of deadbeat American dads, you know. <laughs> you sure, of course, right. right, right. You know, so, so there's that, but, you know, stereotypes like that, dads in uh, America make time for their children where, you know, dads in Japan only care about work and, you know, stuff like that I think is, uh, huh. you know. Is is that true about uh, fathers in, in in Japan? That is, there's a strong work culture there, where the work comes first. Is that is that a is that an accurate thing? Yeah, that absolutely. That is accurate. Okay. Yeah, I, that, I think is, there's that, a lot. That of... is a stereotype. I, I don't really think of. I don't 
when I think of Japanese people, there aren't any negative stereotypes that I'm, I ever think of or hear of, but there are stereotypes that I have heard, and that is one of them. So that is a true thing. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think Japanese society is changing a lot. Um, you know, and so I think there's a, a, a greater consciousness that, that fathers need to be in their children's lives. And um, so I think it, you know, it, it's quite different from, you know, 10, what was it, about 12, maybe 14, 13, 14 years ago, uh, teachers could s- still smoke inside of their, you know, um, inside of the teachers' rooms on campus and stuff. Um, which I, I think was probably outlawed in the U.S. Uh, many years before. Um, yeah, when I was when I was in high school, we're, we're talking about the the early '90s. Right, know, teachers could still smoke in in their own you know rooms and such, but I that, right. that has changed probably in the past twenty years. Yeah, so you know, and so I think Japan is just a bit later. Um, Finally, you know, um, Japanese fathers are starting to take uh, paternity leave, you know, so instead of the, the mom just taking time off when they give birth, some of the, you know, dads are starting to take paternity leave, which I, I think, you know, 20 years ago would have probably been unheard of. Um, so I think times are changing. I think uh, it's, there's a lot to be positive about, but yeah, there's, you know, <laughs> just like every society, I think there's plenty of Plenty of problems. Of course, you know, no, everywhere. I I understand. I I always mm. I always find it interesting. What a, I I I have heard that a lot of. I don't know if you're familiar with the show Roseanne. It was an old sitcom, and the. Okay. Yeah. I I think oh, I've seen that. Before. Yeah, a lot of people think that Americans are like Roseanne or like the. <laughs> okay. That that's typically what I hear from other people, but I've right, never, right, right. I've never heard the Japanese perspective. That that's really interesting. I I would say the fathers being more involved is is absolutely true uh it was right. true for me yeah. it's it's true for right. just about every father that i've ever known in right. uh, in my life uh yeah yeah you, you know so that's that's definitely just very very interesting just to hear that perspective all right so that's going to do it for my interview with kiyoshi i am really appreciative of the time that he spent with me we had we couldn't do it all in one session so he set aside time to to continue the interview, and I, I really appreciate that. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he is at judofan.com. you got to spell out the dot, D-O-T, so judofan, D-O-T-C-O-M. And if you want to read his blog, it's, of course, judofan.com. Again, Kiyoshi, I'm sure you're listening to this. Thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to having you back on in the future. I am definitely following uh, your Twitter and, and certainly your blog. And I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on, on the match. I'm not sure if I'll be able to get you on uh, right after the match. It's probably unlikely given this time of year, at least in the United States with all the holiday stuff and everything. But uh, but I'll be sure to be tweeting and retweeting at you and things like that. So as a reminder to all of you, if you manage to listen to this before December 13th, the match is happening the Abe versus Maruyama match is happening at uh, 3 p.m. Tokyo time, which for me, uh, in the East Coast of the United States, that's 1 a.m. on Sunday morning. And I already have my alarm set, so I am definitely going to watch that. I'm not going to miss it. I'll end up falling asleep and then waking up at around 12.30 a.m. Uh, to watch it. It'll probably be like a five-minute match, and I'll go right back to bed, but... um. 
as I've mentioned several times already, this is, for me anyway, this is must-watch TV. So I want to cover uh, real quickly a video series uh, that is relatively new put out by a fellow by the name of John Donaher. Now, for those of you who don't know who, know who John Donaher he is, he is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, a fourth degree, I believe, under Henzo Gracie, and he's from New Zealand. And for anybody who is really a, a jiu-jitsu guy, when I say John Donaher, that's the, that's the equivalent of of a judo person saying, I don't know, Yamashita or something. Everybody in the jiu-jitsu world knows who he is. And if and if you don't, then you're probably a white belt. So he's uh, coming out with this video series called Feet the Floor. Uh, and it's to help jiu-jitsu guys with their takedowns. Now, what I'm reviewing here is not necessarily the Feet the Floor video series, but, but a series of videos that I've seen on YouTube... Um, one of them's like titled uh, "Best Takedowns for Jiu-Jitsu," and the other one is titled uh, "How to Do the Perfect Jiu-Jitsu Takedowns" by John Donaher. And and both of these videos are quite lengthy. And this was brought to my attention by a training partner of mine, a friend of mine. He sent me this video to get my impression of what I thought about the takedowns in this video. Now, the reason why uh, my friend sent me this video is because he wanted to get my impression of the Osotogari. He knows that Osotogari is probably my best technique. Actually, I know it is. It, it's still number one for me, and Yoko Akari is number two. Now, before I express any criticism, I want to make it clear that I'm not criticizing John Donaher, and I'm not even criticizing his technique necessarily because when I see him move around on the video... If he's not at least a judo shodan, then I i mean, from what little that I've seen so far, I, he probably should be because he, he moves very well for a person that is his age. I believe he's over 50 and you, somebody that's had a history of uh, knee injuries and, and other sorts of injuries and a lot of surgeries and stuff. He moves quite well. He can demonstrate a, a Yoko Tomonagi quite well. Uh, he can demonstrate, you know, certain basic judo techniques quite well, and 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 in terms of basic judo principles, it, it's clear to me that he understands what he's trying to accomplish. However, the, the the separation for me, the disconnect for me, is some of the techniques that he's demonstrating, and in particular with the video that was shared to me, he's teaching something called a drop osotogari. And I, when I saw that, I, I thought that's really bad. For, for a guy that was demonstrating other throws w with some proficiency, dropping on a knee, it, it's just because you drop on a knee with your leg behind another person's you know leg, it, it's not drop Osotogari. And you really can't even call it Osoto Otoshi. It's, it was just really a bizarre demonstration of a technique that really is unnecessary and doesn't really help with the takedown itself. And and Donaher's premise on these video series that I've seen is the fear of the roll-through. You know, when you see a lot of high-level judo competitors, uh, when they throw and they throw people in practice and stuff, they roll through the throws. But that's really more by design. That's not like... That's not part of the traditional judo curriculum. And I, I'm, I'm sure some of you out there are rolling your eyes when I say traditional judo. But the point remains 
is that the objective of judo is to throw to a hold down or you throw to a submission. And I guess my overall point is that for me and for millions of other judo uh, judoka throughout history, we've always been taught that you throw and you go right into your hold down, you go right into your your arm lock, basically, or 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 a choke or some kind of submission. It was it was not just throw and walk away. That a lot of times that's what Rondori has become. Whenever we do Rondori, we don't we just trying to stay out of each other's way to not uh, get stepped on, but. If, if it's an empty mat and it's just me and, and somebody else and I'm not – a lot of times I we do practice throwing to a, 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 a osaikomi. It's, that's just how it's done. So the rolling through is really more of a safety mechanism to me anyway. So if you don't – you don't just land on the guy with all your weight. And I think in 14 years, I've maybe rolled through on throws like maybe five or six times in 14 years. I'm talking about like either in competition or in Rondori. I mean, sure, if I got a crash pad and I want to work on a certain technique and and roll through it, I'll roll through on those throws. But but that's just in practice. But if I'm actually doing Rondori, I never roll through, especially for a throw like Osotogari, which is completely unnecessary to roll through. So it's kind of weird how when I see jiu-jitsu guys that that have some good stand-up and then they try and take what what has worked in judo for over a hundred years and they try and improve upon it, but you're really doing a disservice to the technique and you're making it worse. And and in and one of these videos to drop Osotogari, you know, Donaher drops to his knees. Or to one knee with his leg behind uh, his uke. And he's kind of making the claim that this is a great way for jujitsu guys to generate kazushi. And I really, I think it's a terrible thing. And w- when he was going through the steps of the technique, he was not in a positional advantage at all in, in, in Drapo Sotogari. And then he does a, in this video, he does a demonstration of Tayatoshi and he he talks about the risk of the dangers of somebody as you throw them over, that there's this risk of somebody pulling you through uh, and rolling you over them while they've been thrown and, and, and now you're at a positional disadvantage. And I got to say, I, mean, I don't know if it, I described that properly, what he was demonstrating, but I have literally never seen anybody in judo Pull somebody over after they have been thrown with Tayatoshi. I've never seen it happen. Most people that throw and go right to the hold down, they 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 bring their hips to the ground, they kick their feet back. They never just. I've never seen it happen. I I I've thrown Tayatoshi tons of times. I I've never ever been pulled off balance throwing Tayatoshi. So so to me that was really the bad. But but by and large the video series as a whole, I think at least with the parts that I saw on YouTube, was very good. I, I think Donaher's uh, points were very concise uh, on, on why the takedown game is important. And he also talks about what he calls uh, the, the three pillars of of uh, takedowns for jiu-jitsu. And he says that the three best techniques for for takedown, uh, the three best techniques um, in jiu-jitsu for takedowns is Yoko Tomonagi, uh, Sumigaeshi, and uh, Ukiwaza, and I actually completely agree with him. And, and as a matter of fact, if 
the uh, there's a couple of throws that I would probably add in there. I would also add Yoko Wakari because that's like my favorite throw ever, and and it's cousin uh, Ude Gaeshi. I think those throws are perfect for jujitsu, and I think that any any takedown series or any takedown uh, instruction for jujitsu students really should start with those throws. I completely agree with Donaher there. But the thing for me is that you 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 can't take the principle of Sutemi Waza and just apply it to any throw willy nilly. I, I guess, for for lack of a better term, at this moment. I mean, what's next? Are we going to see a a drop Ogoshi or a drop Harai Goshi? Like the dropping mechanism does not improve on most throws. Does not improve most throws. It really doesn't. So I guess my concern with all of this thing is it's great that jiu-jitsu, I think, I really think in the next five years, we may, if, if John Donahue is putting out videos like this, we may see like a renaissance of takedowns in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I think that because uh, for, for gi competitions, you, you might see a, a, an uptick of, of jiu-jitsu guys taking a real interest to judo. Because I, I, I say that to anybody that'll listen, wrestling in a gi does not make sense to me. Makes sense for no gi. But but if you've got a gi and you're wrestling, I, I, I think that's silly. Now, that's not to say that wrestling techniques in judo are silly. I'm not saying double legs are silly. But taking to me, taking a wrestling approach when you're wearing a gi, it doesn't make sense. Why? I mean... It doesn't. I I do no gi and I do gi. I I do them both, so I understand the nuances that make one uh, better for the other, uh, and, and the context that goes with that. But I guess my overall concern is that with this renaissance, which I believe is going to happen, you're going to see some really conflicting and odd ideas put out by people who are who are black belts in jiu-jitsu, but, but they, they put their own spin on things, and I don't think judo needs its own spin. It, it's good enough as is. I mean, we've had 138 years worth of judo to perfect technique and and figure out what works and what doesn't. There's no need to reinvent the wheel because all you're going to do is is confuse guys. I mean, you're going to confuse guys, and, and worse off, I think guys are going to do things and they're going to get hurt. They're going to they're gonna take people's knees out I saw somebody, you know, speaking of, you know, I mentioned it a couple minutes ago about Ude Gaeshi. I saw this, this, uh, this video on Instagram of, of these, these two girls, like one of them was doing Ude Gaeshi on the other, but it was just this weird version of it where she practically took out the person's legs and stuff. And, you know, of course, when I read the comments, I'm seeing like, oh, 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 that's awesome, this and that. And you know what? They they really have no idea what they're looking at. It's a, It was an extremely dangerous technique that I don't think would work on anybody uh, that was resisting with any sort of effort. And if they were resisting, they'd probably get their knees blown out. So anyway, the moral of my story is that just because John Donaher puts out a video on takedowns doesn't mean that you should take everything he says at his word. So yeah, uh, 11 minutes later, I really had to get that off my chest. And I'm sure my friend Hugo is laughing at me because he's the one that sent me the link to the video. And I've been sending him messages for like the past week or so at various times on things that just really bothered me. Things that I liked about the video and things that I just thought were just, just wrong. So 
I have exorcised the demons out of my soul. I am. I think I can let it go now and and move on with this hideous episode. And with that, I'm probably going to close things out right now. I will have an after party. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna delve into the weird a little bit in the after party. But um, I think I'm gonna wrap things up here. My next episode, I am going to try and get out uh, before the end of the year, and. The first episode of the new year, you guys are going to love it. I'm telling you, that special guest I teased, we got the interview done, and it, it, it was fantastic. I had such an enjoyable time with that interview, and um, I'm looking forward to having you guys listen to it. And I'm looking forward to the interview that I've got uh, coming up in my next episode. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Larry Sutsui, who is the head instructor of the Fresno Judo Club out in Fresno, California. Did I have to say Fresno, California? I think everybody knows where Fresno is, right? Maybe there's a Fresno in Ohio. There probably is. There's a Miami in Ohio, if you can believe that. All right. I think I'm done here. So with that, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. Have a Merry Christmas if I don't see you until then. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style. After party starts in 15 minutes. All right, so the after party. So I want to start off uh, with the weird and bizarre. And if you guys haven't been paying attention over the past year, then then some of you need to be paying attention because. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with this. This is a headline that I read just the other day, and I I couldn't believe that this news agency ran with it, and then I saw the New York Post run with it too. Here's the headline: Former Israeli space security chief says aliens exist, humanity not ready. The Galactic Federation. That's in quotes has supposedly been in contact with Israel and the U.S. for years, but are keeping themselves a secret to prevent hysteria until humanity is ready. So the article in the Jerusalem Post goes on to say, uh, according to retired Israeli general and current professor Haim Eshed, the answer is yes, but this has been kept a secret because humanity isn't ready. Oh, the question is, has the state of Israel made contact with aliens? And according to this this professor, the answer is yes. Speaking to an interview to uh, Yediot Aronot Eshed, who, who served as head of Israel's space security program for nearly 30 years and is a three-time recipient of the Israel Security Award, explained that Israel and the U.S. have both been dealing with aliens for years. And this by no means refers to immigrants, with Eshed clarifying the existence of a so-called, uh, quote-unquote, galactic federation. The 87-year-old former space security chief gave further descriptions about what exactly sort of the agreements have been made between the aliens and the U.S., which ostensibly 
have been made because they wish to research and understand the fabric of the universe. This cooperation includes a secret underground base on Mars where there are American and alien representatives. If true, this would coincide with U.S. President Donald Trump's creation of the Space Force as the fifth branch of the U.S. Armed Forces, though it is unclear how long this sort of relationship, if any, has been going on between the U.S. and its reported extraterrestrial allies. But Eshed insists that Trump was aware of them and that he was on the verge of disclosing their existence. However, the Galactic Federation reportedly stopped him from doing so, saying they wished to prevent mass hysteria since they felt humanity needed to evolve and reach a stage where we will understand what space and spaceships are. The article continues saying as to why he chose to reveal this information now, Eshed explained that the timing was simply due to how much... The academic landscape has changed and how respected he is in academia. If I had come up with what I am saying today five years ago, I would have been hospitalized. He added that today they're already talking differently. I have nothing to lose. I received my degrees and awards. I am respected in universities abroad where the trend is also changing. Now, that's from the Jerusalem Post. Now, the, the Jerusalem Post is a legitimate news magazine. Not magazine. It's a it's a, a legitimate news agency. You know, it's not like one of these fly by nights, uh, fly by night uh, organizations. It's it's legitimate. And the New York Post, America's oldest newspaper, if I'm not mistaken, is also uh, a legitimate newspaper, and and they ran with this story. You know, back in 2017, the New York Times uh, reported about uh, the, the Pentagon admitting to uh, having off-world vehicles. And the Pentagon earlier this year has all but pretty much confirmed that there are UFOs, unidentified flying objects that are not of this world. And even very recently, I believe uh, President Obama was on, what, Jimmy Kimmel? And Kimmel asked him about aliens, and and, he's, and Obama said that it's it's top secret, and sorry, he can't say anything about it. Basically, I'm just I'm just summarizing the words. And you know, other governments have have uh, have their own uh, experiences with with UFOs. Uh, of course, there's the famous Roswell incident. There's there's so many stories out there, and and it leads me to believe, especially with the government. openly talking about this issue it leads me to believe that in my lifetime and I hope it it happens that we're going to have first contact and what I mean by first contact we as a as a human race are going to find out the answer to the question that has long the, the 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 only question that matters are we alone in the universe I think we're I think in my lifetime we're going to get the answer that I question, and the answer that I question is no, we are not alone. And we will have irrefutable proof that we are not alone. I, I believe that. I hope that's true. As for what aliens are or what these crafts are, I really can't begin to speculate. Uh, well, actually, I could, um, but, but I'm no expert. But then who really is a UFO expert? Are ufologists? I mean, you don't go to school for that, so like... I don't know. I, I I suppose I would be just as much of a quote unquote expert as anybody else. Now I don't know what to think of all of these weird stories that I've heard over the years about a- aliens uh, uh, abducting humans and probing them with all sorts of weird instruments and things like that. I don't know what to think about that. 
it, for me, if I were to take a stab in the dark and, and give my own thoughts on what I think they are, I would venture to guess that they are our future selves in, in the sense of they are what the human race eventually becomes thousands upon thousands of years in the future. And maybe they are coming back through time or through some other dimension or whatever the case may be to observe when things changed. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, this isn't original ideas. I've heard people speculate on this over the years, but really when did the uptick of all of this stuff started happening is really shortly after the atomic bomb. Now I know, I know throughout centuries and throughout human history, there's always been recordings of, of uh, extraterrestrials and such, but the, the, the amount of sightings and the amount of confirmations of, of people who are well-respected within their uh, communities and such, the, the, the talking points and such, it, it's just there's, there's too much out there. They can't all be lying, and they can't all be weather balloons. So, so what is it? And what I'm excited to find out personally. Uh, I I do tend to agree that as 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 a human race as a whole, I I think there would be mass hysteria if if there truly were aliens visiting us and we could prove that. I I think I don't think I don't think the human race is ready for that as a as a collective. So it, it's an it's always been an interesting topic to me ever since I was a young kid. I don't delve too deeply into it because it it, it it's really. Really, the UFO community is full of frauds and charlatans, and and it's hard to separate the, you know, the good from the bad. It really is. But I'm left wondering why now? Why, after all of these decades, is the government finally acknowledging, uh, acknowledging this? Whether or not there is a galactic empire or or whatever you want to call it, galactic federation. That is that is having conversations with with President Trump and and the president of Israel. I don't know about that. I, I really don't. But on the flip side, what does an 87 year old man have to gain uh, by, by telling the story now? It's, it's not fame and riches. He's at the tail end of his life. So anyway, I thought that was really interesting. I know I rambled long about that, but I couldn't help myself. I, I, I'm a geek for this kind of stuff. Um, in terms of shows. I, I got to get back to the Mandalorian again, talking about space. The Mandalorian is the best thing in the Star Wars universe, period. Uh, and I think for me, it has eclipsed uh, my favorite movie, The Empire Strikes Back. The, the Mandalorian as a show has, has just gone a direction that I, I just, I wasn't sure how good it was going to be, but it keeps getting better and better. And I think for you Star Wars fans out there, I think you would agree with me. It's, it's, it's fantastic television. It's fantastic. I, I just I can't get enough of it. And yeah, you heard me right. I think, I mean, I think the Mandalorian is better than The Empire Strikes Back. I think it is the best thing in the Star Wars universe, hands down. I, I really mean that. I was also watching this show. It was a limited series on HBO called The Undoing. It's a pretty good show. It's a six uh, a, a six episode limited series. I highly suggest if you have time to watch it that you watch it because uh, Hugh Grant and uh, Nicole Kidman, the acting is just phenomenal. Even if you don't care for the story that much, the acting is just just amazing. And um, now I, I do think the end was a little predictable and maybe a little disappointing. 
but but overall, it was a very strong show. And if you got time to watch it, I I suggest that you guys watch it. 